Good morning, church. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the privilege we share this morning in being your children, gathered together as your body, your church. Father, we woke this morning to the heightened realization that our world is desperately broken. People all around us are feeling vulnerable, insecure, and even desperate. Father, be pleased to send your Holy Spirit to move powerfully through this place, through our hearts. Shake our foundations as necessary to bring your transformation to all here who are hungry and needy for your life-giving truth and your transforming power. Father, be pleased to use me, a broken but redeemed jar of clay, to share your truth and your word, which is your primary means of transforming us into the glorious image of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. If you had the choice, where would you choose to spend a day, at death's door or inside Disney's gates? Three weeks back, I visited Frida Berry, my 91-year-old mom in Wilmington, Delaware. She lives in a senior care facility She's not easy to spend time with, not only because she's unhappily frail physically and mentally and spends most of her hours alone in a recliner in front of a television, but more so because facing the ugly truth of aging, disease, and death in the ones we love is just plain hard. But more so because facing... Oh, on top of that, my childhood best friend, David Crary, my next door neighbor growing up, his mom named Betty, who was my second mom, and honestly the more kind-hearted of the two, <laughs> all the way through my mid-twenties, she was placed in hospice the week prior at a care facility less than one mile away from my own mother. My mother, Frida, and Betty had been good friends throughout the years. The compulsion, I believe, from the Holy Spirit to travel to see them both and say a final goodbye and I love you motivated me with clarity and focus. It was hard, but it was surprisingly good. David, my childhood friend growing up, was in town at the same time we hadn't seen one another face to face for over 30 years. And yet it was amazingly comfortable being together under these circumstances. We had the privilege of visiting each other's mothers together, which seemed to bring smiles of recognition to both of their faces. It was hard, but it felt right to be there together. I left for Florida on Thursday and early the next Monday morning, sweet Betty Crary passed away. 
my mother would have to bear the burden of being left behind once again. Then this past Monday, on a brighter note, to celebrate 14-year-olds, a 14-year-old's birthday in my family, the Barry family headed to Disney World. Our first stop was Pandora's ride called Flight of Passage. This computer-simulated virtual reality experience is complete fantasy, a false reality, the farthest place from death's door in Delaware as you could possibly get. And it delivered four and a half minutes of computer-simulated sensory delight flying on the back of a winged dragon in an imaginary world, so beautifully engaging the senses that two in my party actually became emotional on the ride, brought to tears even. And yet, it was as far from reality as you could possibly be. So my original question, if you had the choice... Where would you choose to spend a day? At death's door or inside Disney's gates? The fact is that we all have a deep propensity to avoid pain and pursue pleasure, to avoid hardship and welcome ease. Yet this doesn't necessarily help us grow spiritually. And God knows it. I tend to believe that life is full of trouble, as Jesus said it would be, by God's mysterious and sovereign design for our ultimate and eternal good so that we will mature and not atrophy away, lost in our own addictions to what God calls good, but we turn into our own personal idols of worship. This morning, we're going to examine how it it is we grow spiritually in this life. We'll be looking closely at two texts, one in John 17 and another in Romans 12. First, John 17. Jesus is at the close of his upper room experience with his closest followers. He's washed their feet with a towel that clothed him as the lowest of servants would have done. He hosted the Passover meal where they commemorated the first Passover meal in Egypt, the night of the 10th plague. And now Jesus is teaching and praying for them to be prepared for what is to come the very next day, his abuse and torture, his crucifixion, and his ultimate burial. Hear God's word and be mindful that these words are Christ's words and he is praying to his father on behalf of his followers. Here's what he says. Beginning at verse 14 through verse 20. I have given them your word. Again, Jesus speaking to his father, God. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In John 17, we have a record of Jesus' prayer at the end of the Last Supper. In it, Jesus prays to his Father to do five things for his followers. And keep in mind, these must be the, of the utmost importance. If they're Jesus' final prayer requests for his, for his beloved followers prior to his crucifixion. So I've simplified these five into five phrases. I want you to listen to them. Number one, Jesus, again, asking Father God on our behalf. Number one, keep my followers from the evil one. Number two, make my followers unified. Number three, sanctify my followers in the truth. Number four, enable my followers to experience my joy. And number five, preserve my followers so they will be with me forever. So in thinking about these five requests, the Spirit led me to reverse engineer Jesus' petitions, if you will. And we get a pretty startling picture of how our world truly is, which we've been reminded of this morning in the news. That is, of course, if Jesus really knows what he's talking about. So here are my results of reverse engineering these requests. What do these five requests tell us about the world we're in? Keep my followers from the evil one. What does that imply? That implies that the world under the influence of the evil one is, number one, dangerous and even deadly. That's a reality. There are many families this morning in America who woke up or who found out in the last few hours how dangerous and deadly the world that we live in actually is. It's dangerous, truly. Number two, make my followers unified. What that means is the world that we live in is incredibly divisive. It's dangerous and it's divisive. Number three, sanctify my followers in the truth. That means this world is incredibly deceitful and distracting. Number four, enable my followers to experience my joy. That means this world apart from Jesus is incredibly discouraging and despairing. And then five, preserve my followers so they'll be with me forever. That means this world is disassociating. It separates relationships. It isolates us. Dangerous, divisive, deceitful, discouraging, and disassociating. Sorry, I had to make them all D's. With this realistic view of our world, if it's true... How could we ever think that we'd find happiness and joy under such a godless world system as this? Seriously. The only way to find blessing and happiness in such a world is to either, number one, live in denial of how screwed up it is and how screwed up we are and use things of this world to stay numb to the reality of it all. That's one way. Another way is to create a relative reality, trying to change our little world by our own efforts to make it good, at least for us. I get concerned sometimes living in upper, upper middle class Maitland that I have ways in which I numb myself out and insulate myself 
from the real needs of the world? Am I creating a relative reality? Heaven forbid that we as Orangewood would create a relative reality within these walls so that we could feel falsely safe. And number three, we can live in view of an absolute reality, being completely honest about the mess we're in and recognizing the bigger story that God is writing and finding our role in it as he reveals it to us through the gospel. For a moment, I'd like to focus on Jesus' third petition here. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Remember, this is God the Son asking God the Father to work these things by the God the Spirit in his followers. That is us. These must be of vital importance. So Jesus asks the Father to sanctify them. What does sanctify mean? The Greek term translated as sanctify means to set apart for special purpose, to make holy, to purify or perfect. Many things were sanctified in the Old Testament. In Genesis 2, a day was sanctified, which we've learned about through Mark Nix's couple of sermons. The tabernacle and the temple were consecrated and set apart as holy. Furniture and utensils used in the tabernacle and temple were set apart and sanctified as holy. And people were sanctified too. The Israelites were called by God to sanctify themselves as his special people. Priests and later kings were sanctified, consecrated for service to God. And now here in the New Testament, we read that Jesus the second person of the Trinity is asking his father to sanctify his followers. Those presently with him at the Last Supper and, appropriately for us, those who will later trust in him through their message delivered. The New Testament talks about two different kinds of sanctification. This is seen in Hebrews ten fourteen. Let me read it to you. The author of Hebrews says this, For by a single offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So there's a sanctifying or a perfecting that has been accomplished for those who've trusted Christ, even as they themselves are still being sanctified. Theologians refer to these two kinds of sanctification as perfection. Positional and progressive. Positional sanctification comes all at once when a person trusts Christ and is legally declared righteous. There's a sense that because a person has been justified by faith, forgiven and adopted into the family, that they are in a positional sense already perfected and sanctified. But there is also a progressive sanctification whereby one is in the process for a lifetime of being conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ through the pressures and trials and hardships of life. In this passage, Jesus seems to be talking more about progressive sanctification, asking his father to sanctify his followers. Note first that sanctification is the father's work, not ours. Let me say that again. The work of sanctification in your life, your spiritual growth 
process is not in your hands to control. It is a work of the Father. Jesus is asking the Father to sanctify his followers. We're set apart and made holy by God himself, by his spirit, not by self-effort. We can't sanctify ourselves by switching from gratifying our flesh to law-keeping. We don't have the willpower to adequately accomplish this switch. Sanctification comes by way of surrender and humility. We can't even do that apart from the work of the Spirit in our hearts, can we? Dependently trusting in Christ's work to cover our lack, our impotence, our great need. Secondly, we see that we are sanctified in the truth. Church, there is truth in this world that is absolute, trustworthy, unchanging, and eternal. There is absolute truth in this world. Whether you choose to believe it or not makes little difference as to whether or not the truth is truth. Jesus himself claims to be the truth. The unchanging embodiment of God's truth. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one ever comes to the Father but through me. Those without Jesus are not only lost, but they're stuck, trapped in their darkened thinking and hopelessly addicted to their fleshly appetites, unable to see clearly the things that truly are, unless, unless the Spirit comes and reveals the truth of Jesus to their minds and hearts. Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. And then he says this, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus equates the truth with God's word. There are two ways the word of God is presented in John's gospel. One, the living word. The apostle John speaks of the word of God as being a he, a person, who was God and was with God. Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. And then there is the written Word, that which Jesus himself used to thwart the attacks of the devil when he was being tempted in the wilderness. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus is saying and asking, Father, make them holy and pure in your word by means of your word as revealed by your spirit. That's what he's asking. So let's consider some applications from John 17. God has given us two key gifts to help us grow and mature. Two, number one, he's given us the Holy Spirit the living word 
present in this world, even in this room right now. He's given us that gift. He has also given us the scriptures, the Bible, the written word. We are to prioritize our lives under, under these gifts, seeking to be influenced by them. Is that what you're doing with your life? Is that what you're prioritizing your life around? Your personal relationship with God through his spirit and the written word of God, your Bible? Is that what I'm prioritizing and centering my life around? My personal relationship with God through his spirit and my Bible? Or is my life prioritized around seeking things or experiences of this world? God has also given us three environments within which to grow and mature. You're going to hear about these three more and more at Orangewood because they've become part of our core values. The first one is worship. Here we are, corporate worship. Why is this such an important environment? Because God in his word tells us that when the church gathers, the spirit is present. And when the church is focused on his word, when the spirit is present, Sanctification happens. So worship, corporately and privately, both are essential. If you desire to not stagnate and you desire to grow and mature and become he or she that God is calling you to be, worship. Number two, community. Christianity is relationship. That's what it is. It's all about relationships. It's about large, mid-size, and small group communities gathering together. Look at all the one-anothering passages in the New Testament. Even the greatest commandments are relational. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. We need to be in worship continually, privately and corporately. We need to be in community with one another continually if we want to grow. And number three, service. We need to live on mission, serving the effort to make disciple makers of all nations. Jesus, in this high priestly prayer, he said, as you have sent me, so I send them. And then he said, I consecrate myself and obediently go to the cross so that they can be sanctified in the truth. Now let's shift gears and look at Romans 12, one and two. Paul is writing to the church in Rome where persecution is happening for trusting Jesus. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The late Warren Wiersbe, pastor and teacher at the Moody Bible Institute for decades, he broke Romans 12, 1 and 2 down in this way. Three main points. Give your body to God. Give your mind to God. And give your will to God. Let's look at these. Give your body to God. As a living sacrifice, 
not a die once sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. So every day you live sacrificially for the sake of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom through the spreading of the gospel. We progressively die to our sinful desires and we increasingly seek to live obediently unto Christ. Before we trusted Christ, we used our bodies to meet our own needs and desires. We often still struggle with that. As believers, the physical body becomes the temple of God because the body is where the Holy Spirit indwells. We're privileged to glorify Christ, to magnify Christ in our bodies. As Christ took onto himself a body in order to accomplish God's will on earth, so we are to yield our bodies to Christ, that he might continue Christ's work on earth through us. We are his hands and feet. We are his tongue. And we have and can have the mind of Christ. We are to be daily, lifelong, living sacrifices to God. This is the right response for what God has done for us. This is our reasonable service, our spiritual act of worship. Give God your whole body. Two, give God your mind. The world wants control of your mind. The enemy wants control of your mind. To keep it deceived and distracted from the truth. God wants to transform your mind. The Greek word for transform is where our word metamorphosis comes from. A change from within rather than from without. The only other place this Greek word is used in the New Testament is to describe what happened to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. God's glory shined through Jesus' flesh. If you submit to God by trusting in his word for your life, he promises to work in you and to bring about your trans transformation, your maturity. God renews your mind with the truth, which matures you as you focus on it. Paul in 2 Corinthians says a really interesting thing in chapter 3, verse 18. He says this, Listen, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Let me repeat that phrase. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. How many of you have had to reboot a tech device in the last week? Your phone, your laptop, your desktop, your modem, your router. Rebooting is interesting, is it not? You power it down, you do nothing, you wait for a little while, then you power it up, and amazingly, it often works. Your device is working again. There is a reboot idea in a spiritual sense. We are charged, we are changed as we are beholding the glory of the Lord. So listen, we must stop. We must stop. 
We must power down from all this world seeks to use to distract us from focusing on the word. And we pursue his presence when we stop. We stop what we're doing and we pursue his presence. How? By being still and quiet by his spirit before his word. The spirit has to be there. The word has to be there. And as the spirit moves and applies God's word to your life, to your circumstances, to your situations, as you are beholding the glory of God by the spirit through the word, you are being transformed into a new, or should I say newer, creature. And then we power up again. And we re-engage in our schedule, in our responsibilities, in our life. Do you see it? It's the reboot process. It's actually how we remain. It's how we abide in Christ. Is we reboot and reboot and reboot and reboot. You're actually not broken in a spiritual sense. Irreparably. You're not broken until you can't reboot anymore. We're designed in this life, in this world, to have the privilege of rebooting. When we shut down and stop doing things the way the world encourages us and leads us to, and we refocus on him. How do we mature in Christ? We remain and reboot. And finally, you give God your will. Your mind controls your body. Your will controls your mind. Last time I checked, our willpower doesn't cut it for lasting transformation. Does it for you? Can you just will yourself to change? Can you will yourself to give up an addiction? Can you will yourself to stop being irritable, angry? I can't. Only when we continually yield and surrender our will to God's will can his power take us over and give us the want to, to obey. Not my will, but your will be done. We actually are empowered to abide, to remain, even as we keep rebooting our hearts for God's sake. So bottom line, Romans 12, 1 and 2 teaches us this. Give God your whole self. Hold no part of it back. The prayer I prayed that began my transformational process was this. Anything, anytime, anywhere, Lord, I'm yours. Perhaps this needs to be your prayer this morning. It needs to be mine again. Father, any, anything, anytime, anywhere. Lord, I'm yours. Use me. Break me. Melt me. Mold me. Fill me. For your glory, not mine. To build your kingdom, not this kingdom. Not the world system. That's how it works. 
So we've learned today that our spiritual growth, our transformation comes through God progressively sanctifying us in his word by his spirit. And we've each been called to contribute to this progress. Here's the one main application I have for you by pursuing his presence. That's what we all need to do. You need to get into his presence regularly, often, continually. You never can get enough. You always need more. That appetite should be insatiable. And the beautiful thing is, you have an infinite God who wants to meet that insatiable appetite. Only he can meet it. Nothing in this world can. Everything in this world is limited. Everything in this world oversells and underdelivers. And while it does that, it takes a little bit more of your life away. We are not of this world. Brothers, sisters. And we are not strong enough in and of ourselves to bring about utopia. Our culture is pursuing utopia. What they want, they want the kingdom without the king. Just like the prodigal sons wanted their father's stuff, but they didn't want the father. And God is actually being most gracious and merciful to get our attention. When we start to think that we're actually being successful at transforming our little world to make it comfortable for ourselves. And we need to be knocked out of that lethargy. We need to be awakened regularly because we keep falling asleep. We need to pursue his presence. How are you giving yourself to knowing Jesus? How will you get near him regularly enough to behold him for who he is? What ought you cut out of your life to stop neglecting the means he's given you to behold him. So let me share one final illustration. And it's this thing. I love this thing. And I hate this thing. This is a gift of God. And it can be the curse of Satan in your life. How are you going to use it? Have you given your cell phone to God and asked him, God, I give you my cell phone. And I ask you to help me. Show me how to reprogram it. So that when I reboot it, I can use it for its redemptive purposes. Rather than be distracted continually and constantly by its bells and its whistles. Who cares if one of my 100 Facebook friends went to the lake today? Who cares if that's distracting me from having my eyes fixed and focused on the author and perfecter of my faith so that I can love my friend who went to the lake today rather than envying him for the boat he drives. So I challenge you, a pastor in Greenville took off from his job as lead pastor for a season to work directly with his youth minister. You know why? 
because they'd realized that they were not effective in their youth ministry anymore. They were not preparing the church to minister to their parents because parents were finding themselves in situations where a fourth grader came home on Friday and was told that his close friend in his class, a girl, was identifying as a boy on Monday, and the parents didn't know what to do with it. So this pastor pulled away from his lead pastor responsibilities to spend time with the youth pastor so they could come together and figure out how to better equip parents to parent their children in this culture. And you know what he said? In a conference I went to recently, he said, I haven't discovered the answer yet, but I know the problem. And the problem is that because of technology, the world system has a constant in into our children's lives. No longer is our Christian home a safe place where they go off into the world to go to public school perhaps, but when they come home, they come back under our roof. It's safe. Our focus here is God. Our priority here is God. That no longer is the case because we are idolizing technology, brothers and sisters. We are idolizing our ability to be on top of information. We think we're smarter because we know something happens three minutes after it happens instead of two days after it happens. We want to be on top of things. The problem is our priorities are getting out of balance. My priorities are getting out of balance. I would much rather spend four and a half minutes in a simulator than spend days with my dying mother at times. Father, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Realign my heart. Reboot my heart. And may I prioritize your word. My opening page on my phone now, if you were to grab it and open it up, I rearranged my apps. And I encourage you maybe to think about, really do this, ask God to show you how to use and redeem your cell phone. But on my app, I mean, there's the usual stuff, calendar, clock, Spurgeon's Bible commentary, Bible in a year, Holy Bible, Solid Joys, a podcast about scripture, Martin Lloyd-Jones sermons, morning and evening, essential Jesus. Now, just because I did that and I showed you, don't think any more highly of me. (laughs) But it's a start. It's a start the Spirit's working in my heart. Can I encourage you? Jesus is praying for you. Sanctify my followers in the truth. Your word is truth. Prioritize your life around that truth. Two gifts, the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this challenging, convicting Message from your word to my heart. Laser beams to my heart. Show me how to implement. Show me how to apply. Help me reboot. (laughs) My phone is talking to me. Father, do not let technology or any other idol keep us distracted from fixating on you.
Come, blow fresh through this body. Renew our hearts, our spirits, our minds in your truth. We need you, Holy Spirit. Transform us, make us new. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.